Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. This is where we look at various nutrition and fitness-related topics through the lens of application. We want to give you practical takeaways so that you can create your healthiest, best self backed by knowledge. Now, on to the episode with your host, Coach Lisa. Hello, and welcome back to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. My name is Lisa, I'm your host, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Steve Hall. He's a nutrition coach, bodybuilder, and the host of the Revive Stronger Podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. As I was saying off air, it's always a pleasure being invited on podcasts because I spend most of my time sat back here kind of uh, doing the role you're going to be playing today, so being host. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, I saw in your Instagram profile that one of your missions is also to not just serve your clients as best as possible, but um, also to spread knowledge or bring more knowledge to other coaches. And I, for one, can say that you, at least for me, have done a terrific job at that because your podcast honestly is one of my favorites you have have some awesome guests on but you also do a great job at um hosting debates and like really kind of um yeah a little bit more especially in those debates sometimes you can feel the tension and I actually quite like that (laughs) so yeah it's it's only honestly um, a pleasure to have you on and to speak about all things um bodybuilding but um as I mentioned off air, um, most of our listeners are a little bit more general population, and I know that they will still get a lot out of it. Um, Nonetheless, I would love for you to just start us off with giving um, us a brief story into how you got into coaching. Um, And I only just recently heard in one of your podcasts um, why you came up with the name Revive Stronger. So I guess that will play into it. Um, So yeah, if you want to give us a bit of an intro. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, and by the way, thank you for all the kind words with the podcast and kind of uh, being able to share. I mean, I'm super honored to be able to invite kind of such smart experts onto the show. And as you know, as a host, there's a lot of background work that goes into that. And I, it's really nice to know that that's appreciated because it is quite hard. And even to sit there and ask the right questions, stay switched on, that sort of thing. And then organizing roundtables, uh, they're really fun. They're tough too, though, <laughs> as you can expect. Uh, but yeah, in terms of myself and how I got into coaching, uh, so I guess I've always been interested in kind of sports and I've always been like an athletic kid. I think everyone has that kind of slight background story, either like some people are obese and then they like get into things and or they're kind of overweight as a child and they kind of find nutrition or something. I was always kind of quite athletic, always on the skinny side, though. I was certainly never like uh, I never had struggled with my weight or anything like that. But uh, when I was at school, whilst I was good at kind of physical education, it's actually super interesting to think about this as an aside. But I was bullied at school and uh, the people that were doing physical education and PE were like the the type of person that would bully you. They're kind of the jocks, uh, as the Americans would say. So. I avoided going into further education on that sort of side. And I went into like, I think I did art actually. So yeah, a, co- a complete opposite almost. So then I went to university after kind of um, doing my A-levels and everything. And I actually studied geography with business. So I have no like higher education that was like super specific towards being a personal trainer, a bodybuilding coach and all that sort of thing. But it was whilst I was at university, I was still like prolifically playing sports. Like I was, I remember trying out for the rowing team, playing football. And in the meantime, going to the gym, I started training 
consistently in the gym when I was 15 years old. So I've been doing it over 15 years now as I'm 33. So it's been a heck of a long time that I've been in the gym training. And I kept that alongside because I always enjoyed kind of my time and kind of dedicating that to myself. And there was no one else involved and you could always just do it. And I probably had a slight like addiction to like going every day and I would do sprints and everything. And I take care of my nutrition, but I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. And uh, whilst I was at university, I, I also joined a running club. And so I was still into my running. And it was in my second year, I was on one of these 10 kilometer runs that I would always do. And I had, I remember having my kind of Garmin watch on, Garmin kind of heart rate monitor, like I was fully into this and you could track your previous uh, personal best. So it would like have a shadow runner with you. So I was always like trying to beat my previous best. And I've kept that mentality throughout like my work and my bodybuilding to kind of always try and better myself. And I remember being on for like a, another personal best and I came to some flashing traffic lights uh, that were flashing amber, which is basically, hey, caution, probably don't cross the road. And I was like, hey, screw it. I need to go get this best, best time. And I went for it, looked to my right and there was a, a van. And unfortunately, I got hit by this van. And uh, that left me with some scars, obviously bruising. I had a, um, what did I get? A slight uh, concussion or something. But anyway, uh, nothing that seemed very serious until I kind of went home. And then I started having kind of a fit and panic attack. And I got taken into hospital where I was in there for quite a long period of time. And this is all going to lead into Revive Stronger. Probably people <laughs> will recognize that. And also why I got into coaching. And it was whilst I was in hospital, I kind of lost any progress I'd made in the gym, kind of all left me. Uh, the easiest way to lose muscle is don't eat anything and don't move. <laughs> so that's basically what was happening to me in, in hospital there. And so I, I kind of came out and I really was like, man, I feel so underconfident about myself. I don't want to do running for obvious reasons. I also didn't want to kind of join any clubs or anything like this. Uh, I felt very isolated, but wanted to better myself. So that's where I really was like, hey, I'm going to get back into the gym, but I'm going to do it better this time. There's got to be better ways of doing it. So I started trying to kind of educate myself. And I came across like um, bulking and like clean bulking, quote unquote, clean bulking. And I thought, hey, if I just eat all this like really clean food, like nuts, like meats, and uh, whole grains, vegetables, I'm not going to put on any fat and I should just gain pure muscle. And I mean, that was not the case <laughs> as we should all know. Like if you're in a big enough surplus, doesn't matter where that food's coming from, you're going to gain a bunch of fat. So I did gain a lot of weight and a lot of fat at that same time, but I got basically all the muscle I'd lost back on and probably a bit more over the course of a year because I really took things seriously. And then I was like, man, I just don't feel like I've done this very well. And I continued to educate myself. And I came across people like Lyle McDonald was one of the first people I came across, um, Alan Aragon. And then I found people like Eric Helms through DMJ, through Matt Ogus at the time, who was uh, like big on YouTube. And he was a real big inspiration to me because he was a natural bodybuilder, incredibly jacked. Anyone who's like around in their 30s or so, they'll probably know who Matt Ogus is if they're into the gym now, because he was like one of the first people that really was talking about doing it in a more evidence-based way through his coach, who was Eric Helms from Team 3DMJ. And uh, amazingly, these are people now I can have on the podcast and chat to, which feels uh, really surreal. So I started to do it better and I kind of lost the weight and I started following kind of programs that had principles in them and having things like fatigue management and progressive overload. I started to understand these terms, kind of actually track calories, macros, how much protein do I actually need per my body weight? Again, understanding of this and it was really transformed my results. So having followed Matt Ogus, he did a bodybuilding show and competed. I was like, 
man, I want to do this. And I kind of wanted to do it to prove to myself that I'd recovered from my accident. And in that same, at that same time, I'd uh, kind of done uni and I got my, uh, I graduated and then I, I was working an office job. So I started educating myself on the weekends, uh, uh, personal training qualification, because I was just like, hey, I'm going to do it just in case. And so I, I got qualified and then there was an opportunity basically to work at my home gym uh, and leave my current career. So I started actually just working on the gym floor, one-on-one -on -one with people. And I was in contest prep at the same time. Terrible combination when you're st first starting a job as a one-on-one -on -one PT, because it's uh, like you have to put yourself out there. I'm also very introverted. So I found that challenging. Also, it was new to me. I wasn't super confident at the time at all. So I struggled to kind of put myself out there with people. But thankfully, people uh, who were like a bit younger than me, from the surrounding schools kind of knew who I was because I wasn't much older than them at the time. And I just call it like uh, graduated from university and they were asking me like, Hey, you're getting really lean. And like, you always do these like big compound lifts. Like what's this about? And so I started talking to them about macros and kind of, Hey, energy balance and okay. Progressive overload compound lifts, prioritize those it's going to train a lot of musculature, this sort of thing. And they're like, ah, like, I think I like, do you do coaching or something? And at the time I had an online coach taking me through prep. And so I was like, hey, actually, like I could probably help people uh, like uh, from around the surrounding area. They don't want a one on one PT in the gym kind of giving them instruction. They want someone who can give them the bigger picture things, uh, the things that are going to really make a big difference long term. So I started working with people online and just fell in love with that, to be honest. And so I just from there transitioned out of one on one PT, went fully online. And then that's where I started the podcast. At the time, I was doing a lot of like written articles. Actually, that's how I first kind of got um, a number of clients and built some awareness of the brand. And ever since then, it's just continued to evolve. Now I have a business partner, Pascal Floor, and we have coaches on the team as well with Mike and Ryan. And uh, yeah, I've been doing this full time for like close to a decade, which is incredible. And since competing in 2014, I did 2017, 2021, maybe next year. So it, it, I've really come a long way since the start and I can't believe it's been almost a decade for it all, but that's how I kind of got into it. So I, I always had an interest. I uh, didn't know this is where I was going to end up. Certainly didn't kind of send myself that direction, but um, yeah, the accident kind of uh, pushed me in that direction because it was after that where I felt very confident. Hey, I, I was like at my worst and I was like, Hey, if, if people are like uh, not clearly in as bad condition as I was, I had some serious uh, ill effects from the accident. I feel like very confident I can help people just understand what they need to do in terms of the inputs that they need to give their body and they get the output um, if they consist long enough. So uh, I knew how much I enjoyed that. And then doing it with people, I found I enjoyed that maybe even more. So I was just like, this is definitely the direction I want to go into. And it all came down to education as well. Uh, without mm -hmm. that educational background, without people like Lama McDonald with bodyrecomposition.com, without Alan Aragon, the Team 3DMJ, Eric Helms, and the education they provided, I wouldn't be where I am today. So I, I knew that was something that I wanted to kind of spread further to. That's awesome. Thank you so much for giving us a bit of a background of how Revive Stronger came into existence and of course, and your personal story as well. And I think you, you touched on a, a few things, which I think a lot of um, coaches have in common. Number one being just that personal interest and drive were like you were saying even on the weekends you were furthering your education you 
try to probably gain as much knowledge from everywhere as you possibly could just because you wanted to not because you someone was saying oh you need to get a degree in xyz whatever it might be um, and then secondly you mentioned that you started in person you started on the floor on the training floor in terms of um personal training and not to say that every coach or personal trainer has to start that way but i think even just from a um interpersonal uh perspective you gain a lot of knowledge from that and it doesn't in my in my opinion that previous knowledge can come from other professions as well but um it, it some sort of previous experience to coaching i think is very very um helpful and then you you mentioned you hit rock bottom and i think a lot of people they get to a place where they hit rock bottom and then essentially how we get out of that or what we make out of it some some of the best coolest success stories come from a place of rock bottom and so super super cool and I my my first question kind of goes directly into the personal training um aspect so I, I know you still um I where I assume your clients your current client you do you do training and nutrition or bit of both for um for them um, as you have a lot of competitors um specifically but um just to give you a bit of a background like i come from a crossfit background um way back well before that more like running and yoga and then crossfit and then into strength training more like powerlifting type thing and only just over let's say the last year and a half or two i have done more bodybuilding type um, training or I'm really trying to just work on hypertrophy um, and what I have personally learned during that is that my mind muscle connection sucked <laughs> so if someone was like Lisa activate your lat I was like where? like I know it logically obviously where my lat is but it was like I can do a pull-up sure not a problem but like it was through my bicep and whatever and same with my my glutes like I'm I'm learning so much and i i keep saying to people like there is so much benefit in trying different things and i think some of the clients that come to you maybe they come from the other end of the spectrum they might have only done you know really high rep lower weight type hypertrophy program programming or some of the women that we work with from their exercise classes and so on you know that they, they they have a very different background and so now comes my question um, what is what would be your advice for someone um, or even just explanation as to why you think it is, number one, helpful learning to get a better mind-muscle connection, even if we're not wanting to step on stage or whatever, if we just want to be strong, healthy, etc. Um, and then what would be your main tips for such a person? Yeah, really good question. And I think it's actually incredibly common for people not to have a great mind-muscle connection when they first kind of get into uh, just training in general. I know when I was first bodybuilding, like I struggled to even contract some muscles because I was just like, how do I even contract that? Like I just couldn't. Whereas now you could ask me to basically contract any muscle and I could just like sit here and I could like be like, yep, yep, got that one, got that one. And it wasn't because I didn't know where they were or anything. It's just like, I just, I don't have that mind-muscle connection. I don't have that ability, that feel. And it is definitely something that's challenging I think particularly I see it a lot of the time when I actually work with powerlifters who want to come into bodybuilding, kind of similar to where you were, 
they're very focused on moving A to B. Like, hey, for a squat, I need to become below parallel and come all the way to the top. I need bench, move the bar down to my chest, put it all the way up to the top. Whereas bodybuilders, we don't, we probably shouldn't think like A to B. We're thinking, what's the function of that muscle? How can I lengthen it as much as possible? And then how can I kind of contract it and shorten it as much as possible? Which is quite different. So in the squat, you might be thinking, all right, what's the target here? Glutes and quads. So we want to kind of sit as deep as possible into that, like hamstring to calf to lengthen the quad as much as possible, sit nice and deep. So the hams, sorry, the glutes are nice and stretched and then come to the top. Whereas again, the powerlifter might be like, Hey, but that's range of motion. Like that's just fatiguing me and it makes it more hard. And I don't want to do that because I'm all about lifting as much weight as possible. Whereas bodybuilder, actually, you shouldn't really care too much about the loads you're lifting. It's just that's required to get the fatigue to not work with like rep ranges that are just uh, not productive by hypertrophy. We just need to train hard enough and through a range of motion that again is challenging that muscle through its longest length to then again being shorter. So I think <clears throat> it takes a while for people to understand that. And I think just a really general basic understanding of like anatomy helps. Mm -hmm. So knowing what is the function of like the hamstrings, they extend the hip and they flex the knee. Okay, maybe then I want to like seated leg curl or a leg curl variant and I want a hip hinge variant. It helps with your programming. And then you also know, okay, what am I trying to achieve on the RDL? I don't want my hips to drop down. I want them moving back. And I want my knees again, not to track forward because now I'm trying to st stretch that hamstring out and not let other things come in. So it kind of gives you everything you need in terms of, okay, so this is what ideally I do on paper in terms of technique, but it's you can even go back to the squat example and be like, hey, not everyone can sit as deep as everyone else. Like you have your own hip anatomy. And that's something you learn as a one-on-one -on -one PT quickly that everyone's built a little bit different. You can't just be like, hey, yeah, squat ass to grass. To be like, okay, no, you, you need to have a wider stance, maybe point your toes out versus someone else. Maybe they need low bar or high bar, puts them in a better position. Or maybe the squat is just not a good movement pattern for them at all to be able to achieve that depth that we want and get the quad really worked well. I can say that for myself. Like when I do squats, I work my glutes and adductors really well, but my quads are like, hey, and I'm not really getting any love here. So I had to find different movements. And that's something else that bodybuilding really brings is you can introduce uh, so many different movements. We don't have to worry about squat, bench, deadlift. It's just like, hey, you just need a squat pattern that can come through a Smith machine that can come hack squat, a lunge pattern, maybe even kind of what suits you, what do you feel best with? But I do think the the fundamental thing to focus on first with people isn't necessarily my muscle connection. It is let's get a good setup. Let's understand what we're trying to achieve. Let's go through that motion and work hard at it. And then I think it's just repetition. For me, at least that's how it was. Doing it over and over again, you can start, ah, you, you start identifying, oh, I can feel that muscle stretching now. I can feel that the tension being kept in that muscle. Like I'm pushing through my quads versus through my glutes. And uh, all of that can should be able to be achieved if you have the technique you should. Like again, with the squat, if you come nice and deep, you keep a kind of upright posture. You don't let your hips come backwards far. So it's like all coming onto the glutes and the posterior chain. You keep that kind of load on your quads. The quads are definitely working really hard. It just might be as a beginner, you can't identify it. I can specifically remember times training clients one-on-one -on -one and doing abs and they were doing like ab crunches and they were like, I can't feel this in my abs at all. I just feel it in my arms. And I'm like, it's because you're so focused on just gripping the weight and you're not actually knowing that, okay, the abs are tired. Uh, it's the same with like an RDL. A lot of people say they feel it in their lower back. It's like, hey, you're going to feel it in your lower back because you have to really brace through that area. The erectors are under load the whole time. It's actually okay as long as you're not experiencing pain. 
and it might just take a bit of time or even the next day they notice hey my hamstrings are really sore and you're like yeah, yeah yeah there you go so i think the mind muscle connection and there is research supporting that it's useful but i really think it comes as a like technique it really helps people learn hey when you're doing a lat pull down don't like if you're trying to hit the lats don't just like lean back and like swing it over here like you're trying to bring your arms down to your side to keep the tension through the lats and i think it just repetition but coming from a baseline understanding of like this is the function this is the technique that should allow you to work that muscle and let's just keep working at it and it will eventually come to you versus like if you hyper focus on it i think that can lead to people doing funky things where they're like I want to build my uh, glutes in this in the squat and they just start like really tensing them at the top of the movement and you're like there's no load <laughs> that's challenging your glutes here it's like gravity's just shooting you down there's no like uh nothing that the, the glutes are working on you're just like over over squeezing them or like a bicep curl and they're like squeezing their bicep as hard as possible it's like, no, no, no. just focus on doing the movement the kind of feel the stretch the burn that sort of local fatigue versus like squeezing and trying to do things like that i hope hopefully that answered the question Absolutely. No. And I think um, you you touched on something or mentioned something that I haven't previously mentioned, just in the sense of um, the mind muscle connection, maybe not being something to worry about as a beginner. I definitely think it is um, important to consider where people are at. I would say most people that uh, we work with, they're, they're often in like that intermediate stage and they're like, oh, I'm going to the gym, but I don't see the results for it sort of thing and that's sometimes where i think that that can come in handy because um maybe it's just the space that i'm in but i feel like it's almost swung back that way towards um more and more compounds over the last few years where like it's been really popularized especially also for women hey do more compounds and that is awesome. I, I I love that. I mean, obviously, um, squats, deadlifts, even in, in the presses, bench, etc. They're awesome movements to do, especially for, for anybody, but for women, just as much as for anyone else. Um, but I think uh, a lot of people actually, you know, they all they hear is like just doing these heavy lifts, and then they're they're saying like, I don't see any glute definition, or my shoulders aren't growing, or whatever. And you're like well you, like you don't even know how to activate your glute or you don't even know really know like during which you're, you're really just focused on that or they might be on that lower rep range of just like five reps or three to five reps or whatever really not getting that much into that hypertrophy range so I actually feel like it's kind of swung either, either that way or of course as I was saying with the exercise classes where the load is just not heavy enough where it's just not as specific um, enough. Um, but I think that ties in nicely into another topic that I wanted to get into, which uh, I have heard a lot of um, information on your podcast recently about as well, and that is training closer to failure. I I keep saying to a lot of people um, or to, to some of our clients, um, do take it to failure sooner than you think, like maybe even in your first or second working set or whatever, or like at least for some uh, of the isolation exercises more frequently than you think, because they often, oh, but I can feel it. Oh, it's hard. Yeah. But is that failure? No. And, and you and I both know that it can feel hard even at rep, if you still have five reps left in reserve or whatever. Um. So how do you, if someone trains alone, if someone maybe even in a home gym how would you encourage them or educate them also on the importance of taking it to failure more frequently and why? Yeah, it's, 
Yeah, it's it's a really uh, uh, you're kind of talking about the pendulum swinging with compounds and isolations and this sort of thing. And the fitness industry is notorious for these kind of pendulum swinging opinions where it's like, hey, failure is the best. And then it's like, no, 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 leave some reps in reserve or low volume, high intensity, no high volume, like lower, medium intensities, whatever. And as always, it's normally something in the middle. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's been some recent research uh, looking at this where they actually did some meta-regressions and a meta-analysis of the literature and found essentially the relationship between hypertrophy and training to failure was the closer you get to failure, the more hypertrophy you get. And uh, previous to that, it was like, hey, anything probably around three, maybe two reps in reserve. So you have two left in the tank, three left in the tank is just as effective as failure. And so, hey, let's train more so towards three and two because there's less fatigue. Everyone knows when you train to failure, yeah, it's not, it's not the most uh, low fatigue thing you can be doing. And it's a bit less fatiguing to leave some reps in the tank. Uh, but now with the literature, it's like, hey, but training to failure causes more growth. So maybe we should think about that a bit more. And there's always uh, caveats to these papers because... The majority of the research was looking at lower frequencies. I think it was 90% plus of the papers were two times a week and low volume. Not how I don't think probably any of the listeners train or unlikely how many of them train. Maybe some of them, though, because they're more kind of gem pop, maybe they have less time. And so for people who are training at lower frequencies with lower volumes, they need to pull on that intensity lever a little bit more to make sure they're getting enough of a growth stimulus. Whereas if someone's training like four to six times a week, they might not want to fail for every set every time because there's a lot of fatigue cost generated there so uh, it is important like you said to train close to failure is the, the simplest way to think about it without getting super sciencey i find is just hey you need to meet a stress a stress threshold for the body to be like hey that was hard i need to adapt to make sure that that isn't as hard next time so we can deal with it and that's why overload that's overload basically you need to meet an overload threshold for the body which when we're talking about training to failure, you, I mean, there's research showing you can be like 10 reps in reserve so long as you train heavy enough. But uh, I don't think that's very practical. <laughs> a practical guideline for like really efficacious growth is probably like a three, four reps in reserve. Once you meet that threshold, you know you've done a set. And that's as long as you do enough of that, you're going to cause a hypertrophic adaptation. So you need to create enough of a stress and then you need to progress progressively overload that stress because the body will adapt and it will no longer be hard enough to be um because of forcing that adaptation and but the the thing is there's also research showing that people aren't always the best at knowing their reps in reserve so if you never try like you might be like hey cool so less fatigue and as long as i do enough i can just grow it's like but if you've never experienced failing how do you know kind of uh, to, where to land and uh i think people I mean, it's just super interesting because I would have thought experience would mean people are better at selecting RARs, but within research, it seems that people who aren't experienced are also almost just as good, uh, depending on the way that you uh, do the research. So if you get someone and say, hey, select your like 10 rep max and like go do 10 reps on it, and then they take it to failure and some of them do like, I don't know, close to like 30 repetitions, something ridiculous. Whereas if you take someone and say, hey, here's a weight go until you think you have two reps in reserve and then they keep going until they think they have two they're normally pretty close like they're like a, a rep or so off people are better with uh, lower rep ranges and upper body work versus lower body work we're not so good with lower body stuff because it's so freaking hard and you're just like like you said it's getting hard like 
you might be five reps in reserve when it's getting hard and uh, higher rep stuff because I think uh, the fatigue accumulated from high rep work is just a bit more whereas you're already close to failure in a way when you're in lower reps so that's a little bit easier so in terms of how I go about programming it for people uh, my general philosophy for the person coming to me that is normally an intermediate trainee who's maybe got at least two years of consistent good experience in the gym um, all the way up to advanced of a decade plus training normally i'm going hey when we come out of say a deload so we're nice and fresh we're very sensitive to the hypertrophic kind of training stimulus that's going to come in let's meet kind of a threshold for growth or a bit past that depending on the fatigue cost involved so for like leg training for big compound lifts i'm normally like hey let's take it to like a three maybe two rar in that first week because that's already like very challenging and quite fatiguing. And it also gives us a quite a good bit of runway in the future weeks to progress that overload. Whereas like for a calf raise, for a lateral raise, for a bicep curl, these are just so much less fatiguing. So I'm much happier people going to two to one. Normally they're in the higher rep range too. So it's making sure that they're definitely training hard enough. And then I'm like, hey, you can progress those and maybe you just match performance some weeks because you're already like at that zero RAR kind of place. And that seems to work really well. So I've just, with the recent literature that came out, it shifted my perspective a little bit to be like, hey, let's not be so volume heavy. Let's go a bit more intensity. Mm-hmm. And actually it's worked really nicely uh, with myself and clients. And so in terms of, you know, people might be thinking, of, so you're saying start a 3-2 RL, but you just said people aren't might not be very good at knowing that. Most people I've worked with have experience with it. They also have logbook data, so they can kind of look backwards at it. And then I obviously describe what that might feel or look like. So typically when you get to around a three RER, reps are slowing down quite considerably in terms of the concentric. So you just start fatiguing. And so you can't as forcefully push that up. So a like clear slowdown of that is normally a point where you're like, yeah, you're probably around a three, four RER, quite a good point to like call it. And so from that point, you can then, as I said, you add a low, uh, sorry, add a small amount of load, maybe two to 3% if you can which is easier on compound lifts or just a repetition. And then eventually you keep doing that. You're eventually going to hit where you're like, man, I I couldn't get another rep or actually I went for it and I failed. And then, you know, okay, um, maybe in week one, I was actually at like four or five RR, or maybe you're like, actually I pushed it way too close. I failed in like week three. And then you learn. And now you have that kind of data where you're like, oh, I can work within this range. That's very effective by hypertrophy. And I can start a bit further back when I'm more sensitive to the stimulus, when I've come out of a deload and I'm fresh and low fatigue, and then I can accumulate a good amount of stimulus throughout the mesocycle. And uh, that just kind of, it's effectively a very simple method, but it just works so elegantly for people um, from anywhere intermediate to advanced. Again, if they're beginners, I think training close to failure makes, is way less important. (laughs) They need to focus on technique and quality. Uh, and then once they get intermediate, that's when it's like, hey, now you need to make sure you're working hard enough because that stuff ain't growing. That's, that's not going to grow you anymore. You have the technique good. Now really challenge yourself as you get very close to high levels of fatigue and failing eventually. Hopefully that answered it. Yeah, absolutely. And I really like that approach because I think it also prevents the other people a little bit more like myself that tend to push it too hard too soon sometimes, I guess, at the beginning of a training cycle to already, um, as you say, like, max out too quickly or just to fatigue way way too quickly and instead kind of actually obviously really and progressively overloading and 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 not just 
overloading without the progress <laughs> in between. So I think that that um, totally makes sense. Um, and uh, in the sense of, or continuing on with the theme of hypertrophy and um, muscle growth, obviously you and I know that uh, in order to, to foster that the best or help that the most, um, we should be at least at, in a good maintenance or ideally in a small calorie surplus. And for a lot of um, our clients and myself included, for a lot of women, I think in particular, um, that is a scary thought, eating in the surplus, gaining weight and so on. <laughs> now, I know you uh, also have some uh, female competitors or female clients. Um, is that something that they struggle with as well in the sense like more mentally so than digestively or otherwise uh, and and if so what are your main approaches in terms of coaching them through those challenges so absolutely and uh, i was kind of nodding my head and smiling because uh, it's not just as you would expect not just females men really struggle with this too including myself so much so that I have written articles on this. I called it adipose phobia, so fat phobia. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was trying to be smart and uh, to call it adipose. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, for the longest time, actually, I talked about my kind of backstory there because I kind of gained that weight and then I cut it down and then I kind of masked up again. I, I had this fat phobia, basically. I got into this position where I was very scared to kind of gain weight because I was like, I know I'm going to gain lots of fat, especially as a natural the unfortunate kind of scenario is once you've been training for a number of years, the amount of the ratio of fat to muscle gain starts shifting in favor of fat because the body is so uh, adaptive against gaining muscle. That adaptation just gets harder and harder and harder to gain muscle. So you have to invest quite a lot of almost fat gains, like maybe even like for me, I'm lucky if I'm gaining pounds of muscle in a year and I'm going through these massing and cutting phases for such a big investment for such a little dividend. But to me, it's worth it as a competitor, uh, especially when you're earlier, though, it's not such a horrible sacrifice. And I think the issue I had in the past was I did these like clean bulks where I was just in a huge calorie surplus and I was gaining, I was trying to gain like half a, sorry, how many? I was trying to gain like seven to 10 pounds, like on a week, like a pound a day, oh. <laughs> <laughs> crazy, crazy amounts. I was just like, oh, this is because I can just gain muscle. I just need to do it as fast as possible as completely ignorant to uh, the kind of the, the, the pace of which you can gain muscle. Whereas now we have a good knowledge that, hey, you just need a very moderate surplus to maximize your chances to gain muscle, where maybe you're only gaining a percent or two additional body weight per month. So you only need to be in maybe a two to 400 calorie surplus for a lot of people uh, a day. And that's not actually going to lead to you gaining heaps of fat in a short period of time. You'll you slowly get a little bit softer over time, but it's not like suddenly, oh, no, I'm fat. It, it very much is slow. And to the point of which you may even not really notice it until you maybe look months down the line and compare back. You're like, ah, oh, but I'm also much bigger. And then that's where I come in and I focus on the positives. So I also frame it like this for myself at least this is what i did i put in so much time and effort with like nutrient timing making sure i hit my protein eating a healthy diet taking care of my sleep training really hard in the gym all of that just to not give myself one of the easiest things to promote to maximally promote muscle growth in just a small surplus so just eat a couple of hundred more calories and you're already really putting yourself in just a much more anabolic environment to grow that muscle tissue so that kind of like framing that cost that was involved with not doing it uh, kind of really shocked me into doing something. And then also knowing that 
Like if I don't do this, I'm going to look back in maybe a year's time and be like, hey, I haven't really grown anything. If you want to be a bigger person, a more muscular individual, you need to gain weight to be able to do that at some point. If if you're 140, 30, 20 pounds now and you want to be 150, 60 pounds and just as lean as you are now, you need to therefore kind of gain that weight to be able to kind of come through. I also think about it as if uh, muscle gain is like cycling uphill. It's very challenging. You, you don't want to make it any harder by not giving yourself a surplus. Whereas fat loss is, is like cycling downhill. For most people, at least physiologically, it's a much easier thing for the body to go through. You can lose pounds of fat within weeks, whereas you're gaining pounds of muscle over months. So let's help ourselves as much as possible through the mass gaining, knowing that, hey, we could do a short, sharp kind of uh, dieting period and get all that fat you lost off in a very short period of time so that's also nice and nice for my people that are kind of scared about gaining fat i look six months in the future and i'm like hey so we're going to gain for this period of time this is where we want your weight at but then we've got this kind of diet phase coming in so now you're going to be here and they're like ah oh, like they can see that there's a kind of cut in the future and they're like okay i can invest in the gaining phase now knowing that we're going to cut in future and then all the benefits that come with being in a surplus the fact you have more kind of calories means you have more discretionary spends you can enjoy some other foods that you might not normally be able to enjoy because you're like scared to be hungry now you don't have to worry about being so scared to be hungry so you can eat some things that maybe you can enjoy whilst you're dieting uh, you have just more energy for day-to-day -day living like social events and everything like this everyone knows when you diet you just don't have that whereas when you're like in a surplus like you're just way more willing to go and enjoy things in life and uh, also all of us kind of get into this, I think, initially because we love training and your training is just better. You recover from more, you adapt to your training better, you can get stronger. So there's, I always just try and frame it in all those positives. And uh, unfortunately, the grass is always greener. Like when you're gaining, you're like, oh, maybe I'll do a cut. When you're cutting, you're like, oh man, I'm looking small. So it's just trying to respect the phase you're in and know that, hey, have a long-term mindset and vision of this is the, the cut will come in future when I need it. Now I need to invest in me today so I can kind of have that. And I think that's something I really love about bodybuilding is it really trains that in you where you have this like long-term mindset. Um, delayed gratification is like, that's exactly what body, body, bodybuilding is. So, uh, and anyone who's kind of trying to grow muscle and kind of better their physique is bodybuilding in, in my eyes. So yeah, that's kind of how I go through it. Awesome. I think the main thing that stood out for me is just, or that I want to highlight rather is um, that often even just a hundred to 200 extra calories on top of maintenance, of course, given um, is sufficient because I think uh, what, what previously even just um, scared me of was just the term of quote unquote bulking. Um, you know, for, for, for most females don't want to look bulky. I, like nowadays yes. we have more beautiful terms like lean gaining or gain taining or you know whatever it is um, and that sounds a lot more elegant and then just a, a, a emphasizing with the clients or to yourself as well like okay if I want to grow my glutes or have a more defined glute that weight has to come from somewhere I can't expect the scale to stay the same if I actually want to literally add mass to my body <laughs> so you know just just reiterating to that to yourself but um like like you said as well i i mean i was doing um my first real gaining phase last year about pretty much exactly a year ago and then kind of maintained over the summer and now back into um a small gaining phase um and i i i love 
the training so much more during that time as you said like socially it's just so much easier you don't have to you don't have to be quite as pedantic about everything and of course there are other challenges I think always like digestively it takes some adjustment getting back into that and um, and, and different things but there are so many advantages to um, even just just trying it if anyone listening out there has um, been afraid of of going into a calorie surplus or so there's a lot of personal growth that comes from that and learning and that comes from that as well more about your body and everything else also so um yeah i can only agree with that um i have a few like sort of more questions in terms of your personal opinion slash your coaching approach to kind of round us off with if you don't mind um and sure. they're more like short questions so you don't need to go too much into detail um but the first one would be for someone or actually for anyone also wanting to optimize their physique not necessarily wanting to step on stage but do you um think and have you seen that three days of training about an hour maybe hour and a half max is enough so sorry what was the goal for that for that individual but basically do you if it just just um optimizing their physique it doesn't have to be stepping on stage nothing like that sure. um yeah, of course, health a little bit too, but just generally adding some muscle over the course of time, no time pressure, whatever general yeah. health is three days of training enough. Yeah, I think for the vast majority of people, especially the people listening to this podcast, like three days of very high quality training where, uh, again, they're training really hard and uh, they have good exercises and they have um, good technique with those exercises. Maybe they're in a surplus they're really going to be putting in a lot of good work to be growing really nicely. And I think that three day a week split can take you really far. Uh, it's only until people are looking to, uh, maybe they find that they're struggling to get in sufficient volume because it's like your sessions end up being mostly full body. They can become two, three hours maybe. I think then it becomes a bit challenging and you might look to add in another day to just spread that volume out so you can do it a little bit more high quality. But I think for a lot of people, three days, I wish when I was younger, I kind of started at three days a week, really high quality training versus I was just going like every day and it was really low quality. So I kind of really pushed just doing loads of junk volume basically. Um, so yeah, I definitely think it can work and up to a point and then, uh, but it can take a lot of people very far to the, the point where they probably will find they might not ever want to do more. Perfect. Yeah. And I, th I think um, since everyone is super busy and a lot of people struggle to even find time for that hour, hour and a half, even if they'd like to invest more time, you know, family, fathers, whatever. Um, I think um, three days is great uh, in my opinion as well. Um, now, when it comes to protein, we hear so many different things as well. Um, is 0 0.6 grams per pound uh, enough? Should we push it up to, you know, 1.2 or even certain studies with two grams or more and um, per pound of body weight where do you and uh, in, in your coaching like to set protein with your clients and does that change um depending on whether they are maintaining losing or gaining really good question yeah i think there was a recent uh, meta-analysis that came out on this and said 0.7 grams per pound could maximize muscle growth and I was like, my, uh, my bias is higher protein. So uh, just coming from like bodybuilder background, like my protein has been high for the longest time. And all the old school bodybuilders were eating like way excess, like that two, three grams of protein. 
I think when I first, when I said I was gaining weight really quickly, my protein was at like 300 grams plus, way in excess of what I needed. Uh, and as a uni student, spending way too much money on tuna and protein just in general. So there was a lot wasted there. So my, so with my bias in mind, I generally like a one gram per pound as like a general rule of thumb. I think that's been a rule of thumb for a lot of time, like a long time, and it's worked really well. I also don't like to be, because protein is so important for muscle growth, I don't want to be on the edge of just enough. I would prefer to be a little bit of buffer above that to just make sure if any research came out in future that was like, hey, actually 0.7 was maybe not quite enough, not 8, 0.8 was actually better. I'm like, hey, great, we're at one. Like we should be, we should be great here. So I, I like that. There might be scenarios that I come down to like below one gram per pound. And that's normally if we're worried about fat or carbs not being sufficient or if someone's preference was really not to go that high. Or if someone came from a low protein background and they're like just edging their self, getting used to kind of higher protein intakes. So that's kind of where my kind of general philosophy is. When people are dieting, uh, we have, again, good literature su support that we're going to be less likely to promote muscle protein synthesis. We're going to be more so in that kind of muscle protein breakdown kind of environment where we're at risk of lo losing muscle because of being in a calorie deficit. We don't have the carbs that can be protein sparing. And so there is kind of research suggesting that like 1.2 grams per pound can be like a little bit more protective of muscle. So I, I do think going one gram to 1.2 grams at that period of time is a really kind of a solid idea. And also protein tends to be a bit more satiating. I think there is some mixed evidence on that. And maybe you get used to the higher protein intake and it's not as uh, kind of, it doesn't fill you up as much as before, but um uh, it also meets with a lot of people's preference, at least that I work with. They they like the high protein. Some people go over that. And again, I'm not worried. It's like you said, there's literature supporting like two grams per pound where it's not even harming kind of their liver that people get worried about like the, the liver and things like this. It's, there's long-term research showing that high protein intakes are, are certainly fine and healthy to be having. So if someone's in, again, a surplus and they've got huge amounts of carbs, plenty of fats, it's like, hey, if your protein goes to 1.5 grams per pound, I'm not stressing about it. That's fine. Uh, and at that point, normally they're getting a lot of um, protein through like bagels and pasta and <laughs> some of their carbohydrates coming in. The only other time that I might individualize it is if someone is uh, vegan or, yeah, vegan actually. Vegetarian doesn't really matter because they can still get high quality animal sources of protein. Vegans might want to edge towards just having a little bit higher protein in general, just because the amino acids that they're getting from their plant-based proteins aren't as full. There's not uh, like a, I guess that's the way to say it. it's not as high quality, the protein, because they're missing some amino acids or not missing them fully, but just not sufficient amounts, especially leucine, which is particularly important for um, kind of muscle protein syn synthesis. So they might want to have a bit more care over their protein intake and just buffer it by being a little bit higher. Awesome. Yeah, I, uh, that completely falls in line with what I what my thoughts are as well. And um, as you mentioned, like rather around about that one gram per pound, because otherwise the timing or quality timing and everything, it just becomes even more important. And so we just have a lot more wiggle room, I would say, as well. Um, now, uh, one more question sort of along those lines. Uh, in terms of refeed days or diet breaks, also a lot of um, interesting um, new research coming out and, and on that front and, and various practices, of course. Is that something that you or you personally um, incorporate into your, your diet or with your clients as well? 
really good question. And yeah, it's it's funny because certainly refeeds have been used within like bodybuilding law for like in contest preps for, for years, uh, for decades. And it's like a very normal thing. Or even like they might not call it a refeed. They might call it a cheat day, I guess, <laughs> which I don't think is as uh, quote unquote optimal uh, and can be abused certainly and lead to unwanted eating behaviors. But um, in terms of the research, like you said, there's nothing... There, I think a lot of us, especially in the bodybuilding scene, we're expecting more. We're expecting some real physiological outcomes where, like, based off the mechanistic data in the short term, like, we're getting reductions in hunger hormones and maybe, like, increase in thyroid and it's going to boost your metabolism and, like, set you on fire and, hey, it's the magic that's going to keep your fat loss coming off. It's like, oh, the research doesn't seem to support that. As soon as you get back into a calorie deficit, any benefits you are seeing from it seem to just dissipate very quickly. So I don't throw out the tool because uh, the, the research has also shown that people generally find the diet a little bit easier to maintain. They get some psychological relief. And I really think psychological kind of outcomes are very important. I think they impact the physiological even. And I've seen that with myself and clients. Uh, I went through my 2017 prep, took no refeeds. I did take diet breaks, but I took no refeeds and I did fine, competed fine. It was all good. My last prep, I took refeeds regularly. And I just personally found that process better. I, I enjoyed it more. There's also some kind of practical reasons why bodybuilders might want to try refeeds. You can get some data in terms of peaking and things like this uh, that are just like separate to them. But when I even look at my more kind of lifestyle clients or gen pop who aren't competing, like refeeds just come in handy where it's like, hey, like I have this social event. What should I do here? Should I save up calories or what have you? And it's like, hey, maybe you could use it as a refeed and it can have those benefits that you see. And you can kind of make it sure it's, again, not a cheap meal. It's very like purposeful, planned, and uh, you can kind of make use out of it that can help uh, you sustain your diet and, and adhere long term. And again, with diet breaks, I think diet breaks can be particularly useful when combined with uh, deloads, for me at least. I think they just make sense that they have synergy together because the, the deload is the kind of fatigue reduction to the training. And the diet break is kind of the fatigue reduction to the diet itself. And so by combining them together, you get like, hey, like you get even more fatigue reduction from the training because carbohydrates are higher. You're going to restore glycogen, you're at maintenance. And together, they just have this huge potentiating effect, I find, to the future kind of um, mesocycles worth of dieting. So I do like using those, especially when people have been dieting for longer and they're leaner. When people are holding higher amounts of body fat and they haven't been dieting very long, and kind of like, hey, like you can just, you you got plenty of energy stores on your body. This is easy for you right now. But definitely it's an individual approach. And uh, I think I, I do use them, but not with everyone. Some people even struggle like psychologically to take it because they're like, they just want to binge or it just, they don't enjoy those periods of time where they eat up because they're in the groove. And so I take that into consideration too. Awesome. I think that's the the perfect answer, really well-rounded for each scenario as well, and when it might be beneficial and when not so much. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, I want to honor your time, but I have one last question, and that is just, um, I mentioned earlier uh, off air that you, I, I saw you were also judging some um, competitions, and I would like to know what your favorite and maybe also least favorite aspect about being a, co a judge um is because um from the outside or from what i sometimes have heard uh, at least from a competitor side it feels like at certain competitions it's kind of like there's a flavor of the month where it really depends on like 
the coaches or, or you know sometimes it's even just like blondes do better than brunettes or wow. something yeah. like that you know where you have uh, certain aspects of 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 the industry that perhaps are not so nice or of the job of being a judge as well perhaps also so i don't know um at all what insights you have pros and cons to be being a judge but yeah if you have some insights for us that'd be cool yeah absolutely so the hardest that the thing i like least to start with that to end on a good note is uh <laughs> i struggle with because i coach people and i go to stage myself i know what it's like to be at the back of the stage not in the top five lineup and uh like it's not a nice feeling and i've also had clients who have been in that position too and so to be a judge and to be like giving that person the low score I don't like it because I am so proud of that individual that they've made it to stage. I want to kind of congratulate them. So to give them the lowest score kind of hurts me inside. <laughs> and uh, as a judge, you have to make really quick decisions. As you know, like show days, they go on for flipping ages anyway. But as a judge, you have to make calls very quickly. So you actually have to be quite harsh, I find. Uh, and it's something that is just part of the job, unfortunately. We score at the WMBF UK one through seven. So... Uh, one being the best after seven you're all sevens so i'm essentially uh, and this sounds harsh but when people come out i'm looking for my sevens so that i can focus on the top uh kind of six most competitive people because that's more where i need the focus to be able to be like hey hey here so i don't like that i have to do that like it feels brutal to be like yeah unfortunately i can just see that you're not going to be in the top five so i just seven them and then i i don't focus on them anymore and I, I feel bad because I feel like they should have time on stage to show themselves and all of this. But it's, again, I have a job as a, as a judge to be like, this doesn't deserve my focus. You're not in the top by six. So I need to get you out of sight. So that's kind of the thing I least like about it. Uh, kind of the combination of having to judge people harshly, but then also feeling a little bit rushed. Um, like it's quick. You you just, it's, you can't, like ideally I would have like, every person next to every person and like i would i'd spend a day on one category which is just un <laughs> like it i, I want to be perfect as a judge and it's it's not even something you can be perfect with and it's not objective like you said subjectivities unfortunately are part of it too um which i see with myself because i'll be judging and then i'll have my judge next to me and i'll be like oh i have them third and they're like i have them first and i'm like oh okay fair enough and i'm like I think they're third <laughs> so I keep it where it is and then you have we have seven judges and they get the aggregate or the average and then you see who wins based off seven different people's kind of uh, opinions on that I guess uh, I guess the favorite thing I really like the perspective it gave me because as a competitor myself and as a coach I didn't respect the kind of uh, guidelines in terms of what the judges use in terms of symmetry proportions what they're looking for for muscularity condition i didn't respect that kind of uh criteria as much until i judged and now i really learned it and so i can really look at people and be like this is where you have weaknesses this is where you have strengths so as a competitor and coach it's just leveled me up so i know exactly what i need to do to make sure i'm scoring better as a competitor but also my clients so i can be like i can see where they're scoring down and i know where we can get them to score up so it definitely leveled up me as a coach and competitor in that way and then the other thing i love is also seeing the camaraderie on stage like actually seeing every category and i think the females are particularly good at this where they, again there'll be people that didn't place and they'll be clapping they'll be over the moon for the competitors placing like top one through five 
And yeah, it's so nice to see that because that's what I want. I want everyone to have a good time on stage. So yeah, that kind of warms my heart big time. Awesome. Thank you for, for sharing a little bit about your, your judging um, journey there with us um, and a cool little insight into um, yeah, the competing scene, I guess. So thank you, Steve, for your time. I think it's been really, really valuable for anyone listening in, in, in regards to all the things we spoke about. Um, and I will make sure to drop all your handles, et cetera, in the show notes. But um, I can already say, everyone, go and check out the Revive Stronger podcast because it truly is an awesome source of of learning and um just being even more in, in this space so thank you for all the great content that you put out and um hopefully i can have you on again in some other time for sure thank you so much for having me uh yeah hopefully people have got some useful tidbits from this and i'd definitely be uh, interested in coming back off thank you for tuning in if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to subscribe leave a review or share the episode on social. Very much appreciated. You can also follow us on Instagram at Nutrition Coaching and Life or head to our website, www.nutritioncoachingandlife.com where we provide more valuable content. Have a wonderful day. Now go out and work on your best self.